After being gone for a couple of weeks, it might be, take us a while to think about where we've been. We, together, we've been going through the Gospel of John. Uh, we took a break for a couple of Sundays, and I do want to thank uh, Mark and George for stepping forward and uh, preaching in my absence. I haven't heard those messages myself yet, but I'm looking forward to them. But grateful for that uh, faithful continuing ministry. But we're back to the Gospel of John. And the text before us this Lord's Day is John chapter 6, verses 52 to 71. So we're going to complete John chapter 6. And if you remember, the, the theme has been bread. Uh, the, the, the feeding of the 5,000 and the Lord speaking of himself as the, the bread of life. And we come into the midst of that, um, starting at verse 52 tonight, today, this morning. So I encourage you to follow along in your Bible as I read John chapter 6, verses 52 to 71. The Jews, therefore, quarreled among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven. Not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. These things I, he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a hard saying. Who can understand it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, Does this offend you? What then if you see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit, and they are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe, and who would betray him. And he said, Therefore I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Then Jesus said to the twelve, Do you also want to go away? But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was he who would betray him, being one of the twelve. So recalling, uh, the, the chapter in the, towards the beginning was the, the gathering and the feeding of the 5,000 plus. And we say the, the 5,000 plus because it was the 5,000 men, not counting women and, and children. So 15, 20,000. Any way you look at it, it was an incredible miracle. And then after the feeding of the 5,000, remember, that um, the, he sent the disciples off and he went off away. And eventually he, he walked across the sea and even in the midst of kind of a stormy conditions, walked to them 
and met them uh, at the sea. And then there they went to the coast as they crossed over the kind of the upper side of the Sea of Galilee. The next day, as he arrived uh, there, kind of the northwest area of the Sea of Galilee, the crowds came because everybody knew by then who he was. They knew his power to heal. And when Jesus arrived, every possible illness and every possible demonic affliction was, was brought to him that he might expel illness. And, and it's been said that where he went, disease disappeared. And so, needless to say, every time he showed up, there was a, a, a lot of activity and furor to, to, to be there and to, to find the healing and, and to hear his teaching. We told, too, that part of why they came was enthusiasm. And he even said he, he wanted to, they wanted, he knew they wanted to force him to be king. And so that's why he kind of separated himself from them. They came looking to see more miracles. That was incredible. To be in a crowd, such a vast crowd, and to see him of his own ability to feed the whole crowd. Now, this is fantastic. Free food. Kind of like the miracle of the manna in the wilderness. For 40 years, they didn't have to plant. They didn't have to harvest. They just, every day, there was free food. And Jesus could do it again. This sounds great. Jesus knew what was in their heart. We see that back in chapter 6, verse 26. Jesus answered them and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. They didn't see the miracle of the feeding as a sign that pointed to who Jesus is. See, the whole point of the miracles were to authenticate Jesus as God's Messiah. They looked at the miracles and said, hey, we love the food. We love the healing. Instead of saying, that miracle is not to be seen as something in and of itself for itself. The miracle is a sign pointing to Jesus. Here's the Messiah. But he said, you don't care about it as a sign. You just want your stomachs full. Now, as I read, starting in verse 52, uh, we talked about the Jews and their response. Around verse 41, it seemed like there was a shift. And then we see the scene has, has moved to the synagogue in Capernaum. And Jesus must have been there and teaching, and we see the response. And we're told the Jewish leaders, the Jews, were offended that the Lord said he came down from heaven. You know, they, they were, so what are you talking about? We know his family. You're from Nazareth. We know that, you know, your father, the carpenter, probably some of them said, he built some stuff in my house. Uh, we know his family. What does he mean he came down from heaven? And so they were offended by that. And then he's, and he also said that he came as the bread of life from heaven. He said in verse 51, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. And that leads into our passage in verse 52. The Jews therefore quarreled among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Now earlier we saw where it says they were, they were murmuring, they were complaining and that word uh, in, in the Greek is very much like our word murmur. It just has this sound of kind of a, an undertone. 
You know, you maybe have been in a situation where there's a murmuring and there's just kind of a slight, quiet, subtle rumbling. That's not the word now. It says the Jews quarreled among themselves. And this word quarrel can actually be used of physical fighting. I'm not saying fistfights broke out, but there was loud hostility. There's a difference between murmuring, as you can see people are maybe a little troubled, and they were arguing with each other. And, and, and so some were saying, you know, well, this Jesus is obviously must be the Messiah, others not. But some, many of them were saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? First, he says he's from heaven. Now he says we're to eat his flesh. Well, obviously, he's not saying they're to eat his flesh. Obviously, he's using language that has spirit, using physical things to describe spiritual truth. And we've been tracking through the Gospel of John, as we can see, that's our Lord's method of teaching. And we've already seen it show up. Remember with Nicodemus. You must be born again. And Nicodemus scratching his head, okay, how am I to, to be born again? Am I supposed to go back to my mother? I mean, what does that look like? But Jesus was talking about birth, but not birth. He was talking about spiritual birth, not physical birth. Next chapter, chapter 4, Samaritan woman. I'm going to give you water to drink. You'll never be thirsty again. Oh, I'd like that water. Where I never have to draw from the well. He was talking about water. He wasn't talking about water. In other words, he was using physical expressions. Birth, the beginning of life. To know Christ as Savior. We're, we're born again. We're spiritually, we're born. It can also mean, apparently translated, born from above. Water. Water is the essence of life. And so, and it's, and it's refreshing. And so that's a picture of the Spirit's work in our life. And here he's talking about bread because um, you know, this is in the season of Passover. Right after Passover, they went in the wilderness. God provided for their food for 40 years. But he's, he's, he's using the theme of bread. They've all just had their, their, their needs met. Sardine sandwich, sandwiches for 20,000 people. But they had their needs met physically. And he said, I'm the true. He's saying here, I'm the true bread. I'm the bread from heaven. You've experienced the provision of physical bread. I am. He's obviously not spiritual bread. But he said, you must eat my flesh. And what he's saying by doing that, he's emphasizing he came from heaven. And here's talking about the concept of incarnation. God taking on himself humanity, flesh and blood. But the whole point of the incarnation is that humanity he took upon himself, ultimately, was so that he could put that humanity on a cross and offer himself as a sacrifice for our sin. So that's when he's talking about the, you must eat my flesh my work on the cross is the essence of life, is what he's communicating. Well, what he said, you know, you must eat my flesh, and they start arguing. Well, what is he talking about? Eat his flesh? How can we eat his flesh? Verse 53, Jesus said, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Oh, if anything, it's gotten worse. Now he's saying, You must drink my blood. Now you have to understand. Um, in the, in the Jewish law, you, you, you could never eat blood. Kosher food, kosher meat, the blood's been poured out. Whenever they killed an animal, they had to pour out the blood. Some of you may come from cultures where they eat things like uh, blood sausage. And 
other things. That would be a no-no to the Jews. To drink the blood of anything would be forbidden. To drink his blood, you know, he's using, he's using language that's meant to, to be cold water. It's shocking. But again, he's not talking about eating his flesh and blood. But when he talks about blood, have you ever noticed that the blood is, is a picture of, in, in scriptures of, of a violent death? Again, he's pointing them ultimately and saying, I'm going to shed my blood for you. And you must receive the benefits of my blood. He's not saying to drink it, but to receive it. Verse 54 and 55, Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed and my blood is drink indeed. Now, I should probably say that um, some would actually take this as saying, see, that proves it. We have to eat the flesh and blood of Jesus. Probably most of you, that's not what you're thinking. You're thinking, it can't mean that. What does it mean? Um, But some would look at this as support for the Roman Catholic idea of transubstantiation, which is a, a big word for saying that the bread and the cup of the Lord's table actually, actually become the literal flesh of Jesus and the literal blood of Jesus. And that's necessary because it's a literal sacrifice of Jesus, again, for sin. And so when you're eating of the, the wafer in Catholic thinking, and if you've ever, maybe you've been in Catholic background, been to a service, when the priest offers you the wafer, he says, you know, body of our Lord Jesus Christ, and you say amen, what you're saying is, I agree, I am now about to eat the flesh of Jesus. Drink the cup. I am now about to drink the blood of Jesus. That's not a, a, a biblical doctrine. Uh, Jesus, again, the whole language was meant to be picturesque. This represents his body and blood. We do this in remembrance of him. And so some would take this as saying, ah, see, this teaches transubstantiation. That's not at all what he's teaching. He's, he's saying this, he's talking about the importance of faith in what Christ did on the cross for him. Christ, he says, he's calling himself the bread of life. Bread in the, in the, in the, the, the world of that time was the, the main substance of food. Some of you, uh, you know, some, there some will say, well, if you haven't had some beef, you haven't eaten yet. Uh, in, the, in this part of the world, you didn't eat meat very often. Because if I can get real technical here, it's very hard to eat meat without killing the animal, right? I mean, you can check your encyclopedias and find that to be true. We're so used to the fact, well, you can, yeah, but yeah, we'll put it, most of it into the freezer. They didn't have freezers or refrigerators. So when you killed an animal, you had to have, eat it all. And so that usually was a party. But there was, meat was not a regular part of the diet. And so when they speak of food, they often call, refer to it as bread. Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. I'm the food of life, the substance of life. What he's saying is, you must receive his spiritual nutrition to have life. 
eating Christ as the bread of life, it means to, to take him into your life. I thought about this in, in various ways. I guess just all this talk about bread reminds me of the early years of my living in Dallas. It was always a joy to drive down Central Expressway. If you know Dallas, you would think those two words don't go together. <laughs> but, but when you would approach Mockingbird... There was the smell of fresh baking bread because Mrs. Baird's Bakery was right there at Mockingbird and Central. And there was always kind of this thing like you, then you start looking for a place to pull over and get something to eat. But there's this wonderful aroma. There's something about fresh baking bread that was just wonderful. But imagine, you know, you have a job and, and, and you live and work in a bakery. And all day long you smell that wonderful aroma. And, and, and in the bakery you see all the kinds of tasty treats that are that are put together and made, whether it be a simple bread or elaborate pastries. You see all these things. You savor the smell. You, 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 maybe you're the one baking them and preparing them and putting them out and selling them. There's one thing missing. In one sense, really, all that bread, unless you eat it, you can die of hunger. And so... So eating Christ is a, is a good way of expressing, and he uses it elsewhere to describe faith. For example, in verse 47 and 48, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. So to eat Christ is to believe in him. Not just believe intellectually. I believe that Jesus is a real person who came, who really died on the cross, paid for sin on the cross, rose from the dead. It's not just facts. But it is receiving him into my life, embracing him is a way I like to express it often. And so he's saying saving faith is, to, to, is the feasting of the heart on Christ. It's receiving him into my life. It's, it's, it's not just looking at that bread and being able to describe the biology and the, the chemistry of the bread and to, and to savor the fragrance of the bread. It's taking the bread into my life that it might strengthen me and give me life. That's why Jesus is using this language and, and helping us to understand what does it mean to believe in Christ? I saw recently someone said, you know, you believe that Jesus came, lived, died on the cross for sin, rose from the dead, that he's God in the flesh. Congratulations, you've reached demon level. Uh, James says the demons believe that, but they don't receive him in faith. They don't, they don't have a, a surrendering to him in faith. And so that's what Jesus is talking about. You must eat me. My flesh is food indeed. My, my blood is drink indeed. Or true blood and true food, some of your translations will read. We get things backwards so often in, in, in our society today. When you talk about faith and you talk about Christ and you talk about spiritual things, in many times in our culture, people say, let's talk about something real. So what's real is something I can touch, something I can feel, something I can see. 
And Jesus says, no, you've got it backwards. True reality is in the spiritual realm. True reality is in eternal life. The life of this world is passing. Everything we have is, is going away in this world. And so he says, I'm offering you true food, true drink, because it feeds true life. It's interesting. You know, that's a, again, that's a struggle for modern man. We think of the spiritual realm as non-real. For example, you go into the, the world of modern science. You know, they talk, it's all, it's all about things you can see, things you can touch. And they, they think to be scientific, you have to exclude the spiritual. Because you can't see it, you can't touch it, you can't measure it in the lab. And Jesus would say, you're, you're getting things backwards. This is a, these things are passing. The true realm is in the spiritual realm, the eternal realm, the unchanging realm, the realm of God himself. So he says, I'm the true food. I'm the true life. Kind of reminded me of the story of John Owen, who's, who is considered the, uh, the theologian, the, the premier theologian of the Puritans. One day as he was uh, dying, he was laying in his bed, and he was dictating to a secretary a letter to a friend. He said, I'm yet in the land of the living. Stop. Change that and say, I am yet in the land of the dying, but I hope soon to be in the land of the living. So often we think, well, this is, this is where life is. And, and, and John Owen understood, no, no, this is where death is. Uh, this is the land of death. We want to be in the land of life. And so Jesus is, is flipping what's real, what's true. It's the spiritual realm. What's hard is, and that's why it takes the faith. You can't see it. But you can hear the words of Jesus, and you can trust in him. And when we trust in him as Savior and receive him into our life, that's eternal spiritual food that gives and nurtures eternal life. Verses 56 to 58, he went on, He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven. Not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. And so here he's making again. When you feed on me, you abide in me. In our Sunday school class, we've been uh, hearing about union with Christ. And he's saying, so when we feed on Christ, we abide in him. And he, he becomes a part of our life. When we eat, yeah, have you ever heard the expression, you become what you eat? You know, all those, all those little chemicals and all that spread through your body. And, and, and whatever you eat, that's now in your body. And that's a part of, in a sense, who you are. And Jesus says, you trust in me. I'm a part of your life. You abide in me. There's a union with Christ. And then again, he says, what a contrast to the, you, you want more of the bread. You want like a, the manna thing all over again. You want me to multiply bread so you don't have to work for it. The problem with that kind of bread, everyone who eats it dies. I told you about the, I think last time I was here, and, then, and, and 
talked about the doctor who wrote a prescription. I said, well, tell me, what are the side effects? And he didn't even look up from his tablet. He said, everyone who eats it, or everyone who takes it dies. It was humorous, but it was kind of a reminder. What he's saying is, you know, this food, everyone who eats this dies. You want, you're, you're hungering and thirsting after a food that doesn't solve the ultimate problem, that doesn't feed ultimate life. And he's saying, I'm the bread from heaven. I'm the bread that gives true life. Why are you chasing after that stuff? And so here's a good reminder to us. So often we focus on, this is the world that matters. People again and again are chasing after the, the things of this world. It's all passing away. It's all going away. And yet we put so much attention on things that are passing, things that are perishing. And so little attention to the eternal. And Jesus says, boy, are you getting this wrong? You want me to give you more food. I am the food you really need. But it's a good reminder to us. Are we focusing on the temporal? Are we focusing on the things of this world? Now, we have to pay a certain amount of attention to those things. But Jesus is saying, don't neglect the eternal and spiritual in your pursuit of the temporal. Because this temporal, he says, it's all going away. Moths will eat it. Rust will eat it. Have you discovered one of the realities? You get a brand new car. Maybe it's just my nature. My first thought is, uh-oh, when's the first dent coming? <laughs> um, and, and, and frankly, if you're wise financially and you buy a car, ideally you pay for it cash, and as soon as you drive off the lot or wherever away from the deal, you start plunking in money cause for, the, <laughs> for the next one. Because this one's going away someday. But are we thinking about the, the true life, the true food of life? Well, we see a rejection of Jesus' teaching come up in verses 59 to 65. These things he said in the synagogue as, taught, as he taught in Capernaum. So this is like a church service, if you will. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a hard saying. Who can understand it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, does this offend you? What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? It is the Spirit of God who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. So this synagogue congregation, uh, they weren't buying it. And by the way, you, you notice, um, this is a synagogue. First it was murmuring. And now they're arguing with each other. Uh, so this service was, we, we often kind of polite in church. We may be upset, troubled, disagreeing with the service, but we kind of keep it under the surface. I, when I, I think of this, I think of a synagogue service I went to one time, and uh, this was in Israel, and it's kind of a smaller synagogue, and, and you know they do the reading from the Torah scroll. And one of the fellows was up there reading from the Torah scroll. The problem is in, in the Torah scroll, there are no vowels. And so you have to be careful. And so this fellow was up there reading, and every, he made a couple of mistakes in the reading. Every time he misread a word, 
Several voices from the congregation yelled out correcting him. <laughs> you know, that, that would give you confidence. Boy, man, if, if that were the case here, all through my sermon there'd be people yelling out things to me. But, but, but you know, there was, they could be pretty vocal and pretty, you know, they weren't angry at it, but you don't, on the other hand, you don't mess with God's word. So, so this, was a, I mean, this was a pretty feisty, lively situation and, and frankly, increasingly hostile ate his flesh and blood. What is he saying? This is upsetting to them. And, and, and they were saying, this is hard to accept. Um, and and, and that, that's what they were saying when they say, um, who, can, who can understand it, as my translation reads, the New King James, but literally it's who can hear it. And it's hard to hear. Uh, the, the Greek word there is skleros. And if some of you have a medical background, you might hear of atherosclerosis. It's the hardening of the arteries. So this is, that's the word scleros. It's hard. This is hard to hear. No, it's their understanding, but they're not liking it. It's not like, oh, I'm not getting this. Well, they hear what he's saying, but they say, but I don't, I don't want this. And so in verse 61, he says, does this offend you? What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? In the Greek, what he's saying is, you ain't seen nothing yet. <laughs> he's saying, if this is bothering you, let me tell you what's coming up. The Son of Man is going to ascend. Remember I said, I came down from heaven. Guess what? I'm going back. Now when he says, you're going to see it, only a few people saw. His nearest disciples saw him ascend. We see that in Acts chapter 1. So what he's describing here is, I think, the whole picture. I'm going back to heaven where I came from, and that's talking about the shame of the cross, the, the shock of the resurrection. You think, you think you're troubled now? Wait till you see what's coming. I'm going to the cross. I'm going to leave the grave. I'm going back where you don't believe I came from. And so he then says what the real issue is, verse 63, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. He's saying the problem here is not the intellect. It's, it's a heart problem. And it's only the Holy Spirit who can open your heart to receive this truth. This is a spiritual transaction. And this is why I've mentioned again and again as we're sharing the gospel, as we're sharing God's word, how it needs to be bathed in prayer because it's the work of the Holy Spirit who takes that truth and brings it into our life. And so what he's saying is, it's hard for you to hear because you're counting on your physical intelligence. It's not simply explaining the truth. I've been surprised sometimes to hear a, a clear anti-Christian, you know, rejecting the Christian gospel, who can explain it clearly. You know, so you're saying that Jesus Christ came from heaven, he's God in the flesh, died for our sin, rose from the grave. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I don't buy it. Well, they can recite the facts, but they're basically saying, 
No. What's missing? It's not the information. It's the Holy Spirit who opens the heart, who causes the heart to yield to the truth, if you will, to to eat Christ. So until that time, he's that beautiful piece of bread that's been wonderfully cooked and there on the plate. It's the Holy Spirit that enables me to eat Christ, to take him into my life. And so that's what he's saying, that's your problem. It's it's a spiritual problem. You see, Jesus doesn't step back and say, well, let me explain this better. What he's saying is, uh, you're showing that the Holy Spirit is not opening your heart. That's what you're telling me. It's a spiritual issue. How that helps us to understand when we're dealing with people about the gospel. We, 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 we share the message, but it's the Holy Spirit that's going to convince. I've mentioned before a number of times that, you know, the time someone pointed to a, a drunk lying in the gutter of Chicago and he saw D.L. Moody, the great evangelist, and said, there's one of your, there's one of your uh, converts. And he said, yeah, you're right. He's one of my converts and not the Holy Spirit's. <laughs> I may have convinced him with my message, but it, the Holy Spirit hadn't moved his heart. And so when we're talking to people, we, how we need to do it with, a, with an attitude of prayer and recognition, it's not, can I uh, you know, intellectually convince you? I mean, I need to be, we need to be clear in explaining the gospel. But the real issue is it's the Holy Spirit who needs to open the heart. And so that tells us, too, as we're, you know, as we're raising our children and our, our grandchildren, as we're, as we're sharing the gospel with those around us, recognizing that it's the work of the Holy Spirit we need to pray for. That God, the Holy Spirit, would open that heart. And perhaps if you're hearing these words today and, 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 and wrestling with them, I don't know if I can buy that. You might shoot up a prayer to the Lord and say, Help me know and, and receive your truth. It's a work of the Holy Spirit, he says. And so Jesus recognizes their unbelief. He doesn't back off of what he said too often. That's how we handle things in this day and age in our culture. We want to soft pedal the truth of God's word so that we don't offend. So that we don't uh, bring conflict. That wasn't Jesus' way. He put the truth there. And, and he realizes that it's, it's, they are not re- believing him because it's a spiritual issue. They have a spiritually hardened heart. It's the Holy Spirit that needs to open their heart. But he doesn't back off his message. He doesn't soft pedal it. He doesn't remove the offense He trusts the Holy Spirit to do that. So in the context of unbelief, we see Peter speaking up. We always smile because so often Peter's the one who speaks. He gets it right this time. And so we'll give him a pat on the back on this one. and We'll laugh at him later. But he he says in, in verses 66 and 67... 
From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Jesus said to the twelve, do you also want to go away? So, so many were hearing this, and the response was, um, the response of the crowd, many were, was hostile. It says, many disciples went back and walked with him no more. So I need to explain that word disciple, literally means a learner. Don't confuse that with the 12 apostles, the, the ones whom he called to himself. We're, so the, the, this, means, this is the crowd that were happy to go and hear him speak. Um, frankly, they, maybe they were, thought it was fun to watch the miracles. They liked the fact, perhaps, that uh, this was no this he wasn't like the rabbis. In fact, sometimes he gave it to the rabbis, and they liked that, or whatever it might be. You know, they would go and listen to Jesus, and he talked about, you know, love and other things like that. Oh, that's great. But this, they stopped following him. They said, "That's it. That's the last message I'm listening to." They walked away. And Jesus' response to his disciples is, do you also want to walk away? As I read this about these disciples that left, it reminds me of a passage that John will write later on in 1 John chapter 2. When he was warning about false teachers in the church. In 1 John chapter 2 verse 19, John writes, 1 John 2 19, they went out from us. But they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be manifest that none of them were of us. There's a sermon in prepositions in that wonderful verse. But see what he's saying is, those who left the fellowship of the saints, he said, were never really of the fellowship of the saints. They were among us, but they were not of us. And so that's what's happening. What happens in the church was happening back in Jesus' day. Okay, here's the crowd, but Jesus wasn't all impressed about the crowd. Wow, and I can imagine the disciples were probably, whoa, they, they probably had counts for, well, they're, they're the ones that knew. 5,000 came. Um, that wasn't the most important thing to Jesus, and he knew a lot of them weren't real followers. So here's the test. They didn't stick with him. So Jesus says to the disciples, do you also want to go away? That's how the New King James reads. The Greek you know, can tell you, they, ask, they can ask the question in a way that tells you what the answer is supposed to be. So the Greek literally would be more like, you don't want to go away also, do you? Okay, that tells you what the answer is supposed to be. No. No, I don't want to go away. So that's how Jesus, you don't want to go away also, do you? So that's how he asks the question. And Peter speaks up and answers for the group. Verses 68 and 69. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we've come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. What a great answer. Leave you? For what? Where else are we going to go? You have eternal life. I'm going to go follow some rabbi that's going to tell me better how to wash my hands or how better to... You know, keep kosher, how, how better to keep the commands that I can never fully keep. You have eternal life. You have life. He gets it right. You're our only hope. 
So notice what it's, the Bible here is saying is there aren't various options. Well, you choose this, you choose this, you choose this, we'll all meet together at the end. That's not what he's saying. There's only one way. Jesus is the only source of eternal life. And so he says, you know, Jesus doesn't say, well, have you tried Buddha? No, there's only one way. You're the only one who has eternal life. I feel like I need to ask you, do you know that eternal life? Do you recognize Jesus isn't one of the options on the cafeteria uh, table? He is the only way to eternal life. That's exclusive. He's unique. But he broadly invites, come. Come. Peter says, where are we going to go if we leave you? You are the only one who has eternal life. Peter hits it out of the park on this one. There's no plan B. You're it. Verse 69, he says, We've also come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That reminds me of chapter 20, verse 31. These are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that believing you may have life in his name. We've come to know who you are. You are God in the flesh. You are the source of eternal life. You're God's chosen Messiah. That's a good confession. And notice he's speaking for the group. Jesus corrects him. Verse 70, Jesus answered, did I not choose you? Remember, he, he, he called them, these 12. He's now talking to the 12. He individually called each one to be his apostle. Yet one of you is a devil. I know who you are. He's, when Peter says, we know you're the only way to eternal life. We know and have trusted in you. Jesus says, I know you. And I know one of you isn't with me. One of you is a devil. I'm always marveled when, when, he, when I've mentioned this at various times when he talks about Judas Iscariot. Judas covered it well. You notice that it doesn't say the 11 all looked at Judas and said, I knew you scoundrel. Judas was called by Jesus just like the rest of them. Apparently, Judas was sent out just like the rest of them. Apparently, Jesus could do miracles just like the rest of them. That's, that was God working in spite of him. Kind of reminds me of Balaam in the Old Testament. An instrument of God, but not a child of God. And he says of him, he's a devil because he's actually going to betray Jesus. And yet Jesus called him. Jesus knew all along. But called him to be among the twelve. So verse uh, 71 helps us know that. He spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was he who would betray him, being one of the twelve. John will later on write, won't he? Some will leave. Don't be surprised. It's, it's not enough to be a part of the group. To be able to talk like everyone else and to use the, 
the biblical, even biblical terminology, and be able to talk about Jesus. Judas was in the inner circle of 12. Judas could quote sermons of Jesus that he heard. Judas had benefits we don't, don't, don't have. He, he was with Jesus for a couple of years. Heard his virtually every sermon. Saw virtually every miracle. Could quote him, talk to him, represent him, but didn't know him. He didn't have the Holy Spirit's drawing and opening of the heart. And so in this whole context, when Jesus is talking about the bread of life, he's recognizing there are those who feast on Jesus and those who forsake Jesus, who reject Jesus. And so as we kind of close this text, just some takeaway on this. Jesus is not surprised by the unbelief. Have you ever felt like that when you're talking to someone and sharing the gospel? I think, surely you're going to get it. Surely you've had every opportunity. Surely you'll believe. And then, what? You don't accept this? Jesus wasn't surprised. As a matter of fact, he says, don't I know you? Didn't I tell you? One of you is an unbeliever. Don't be surprised. Don't be discouraged by false professors of faith who, who go along with the flow for a season, but then don't stay the course. John tells us that's how you know they were not born again. Now, they might go, believers might go through a time of discouragement and pulling back a little bit, but a total abandoning of Christ, a, believer, a true believer cannot do that. The living, eternally living, can't stop living. Don't be surprised. Don't be discouraged. For ourselves, I have to urge each of us to take to heart. Don't be satisfied with exposure to the truth, with Christian activity. A lot of times I'll talk to someone who and, and I'll say, you know, do you, do you know Christ? And they'll tell me about what church they go to and all the activities and all the functions they've held. And that's nice and good, but that doesn't talk about, but is your heart made new? Are you a new creature in Christ? And so a good reminder to us, don't be satisfied with being in the right place, doing the right things. We need to feast on Christ. Receive him into our life and receive his life. And what does that mean? It's to take him by faith into our heart. So going back to that being in the bakery. And you can be there. You could have gone. I could have gone and gotten a job at Mrs. Baird's bakery. Probably wouldn't want to do that. After a while, you wouldn't even smell bread anymore. I could tell you stories about the summer I cooked hot dogs in a, you know, a marine park in a uh, water park. I couldn't face a hot dog for two, three years. But anyway, you know, but you could be in there. You could be among it. You could know the biology. You could know the chemistry. You could know all the recipes. You could talk, talk, talk all you want. You're a bread person. And yet not eat it. 
have you fed on the Lord Jesus Christ? And are you clear on that? And, and as we are reaching out to those we love and those we know, you can't make someone be moved by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has to do that. But recognize, leave room for the Holy Spirit. For he is the one who opens the heart, who opens the eyes, who opens the mouth to feed on Christ. Father, thank you for your glorious truth. Thank you for your wonderful spirit who does open hearts and eyes. And Father, we confess we who trust in Christ as Savior. No, it's not that we were smarter or better, but in your mercy. You opened our eyes and showed us our blindness and showed us the life of Christ. Thank you for life in him. Lord, as we have been together with thought of those who need Christ, we pray for them. Lord, I pray if any who hears these words has yet to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, may your Holy Spirit do a wondrous work in their lives as well. And this I pray in Jesus' name.